Hello, welcome to the Expo North podcast. My name is Joan Johnston. Thank you for joining us. I wanted to work in trend forecasting, but I didn't know where I could get a good, unique angle. And it was actually one of those eureka moments. I literally sat bolt upright in bed in the middle of the night and thought, I need to set up a home-focused trend forecasting agency. Today, we talk to Joe Feely, the founder of Trend Bible. Trend Bible are a trend prediction agency based in Newcastle, working with global brands and organisations predicting the future of life at home. We wanted to ask Joe about trend prediction, how Trend Bible began, and how the team see into the future. Joe, I'd like to thank you for your time today. It's great to have you on this podcast. And and how how are you doing um, and where are you right now? Thank you. It's a pleasure to join you. Um, I'm probably like most people, I'm at home um, with two children and my husband um, somewhere else in the house. I'm hoping they're going to be very well behaved and quiet during this. But uh, it's kind of the new normal, isn't it? Having to dial in and have family life in and around you as you're trying to, to work. Absolutely. And, and and that's what's, you know, one of the positives, I guess, of one of the things that's happening right now is the fact that work and life is integrated much more than it's ever been. Absolutely. I think it's changing. I think it's a much needed change, actually. I think this sort of notion of professionalism that we can all uphold easily in the office um, is, is really challenged when you're at home. And uh, you know, it's. I think it's important that we're honest about the fact that we've we've got another another sort of side to our lives aside from our sort of professional life, and it's nice to be able to embrace calls where people have family members coming and sitting in and things like that. So I do think it's. Um, I think it's good for all of us. We're delighted, I say, to have you and to hear about Trend Bible and what you do as a business and how you began. Thank you. Okay, Joe, would you like to tell us what trend forecasting actually is, please? Absolutely. So trend forecasting um, is is really enabling brands to stay relevant. It enables companies and brands to think about the future and to plan for the future. And it helps them understand what the future consumer will feel and what they will think and what they will actually do. So we always say that if we can map how consumers' attitudes might be shifting, then we can start to plot out how we think their behaviours will also adapt as well. And of course, that's highly valuable to to brands and retailers because it enables them to produce product ranges and marketing messages and strategies to help them be as resilient as possible and to cope really well with the change that's forthcoming. Um, And we we tend to work with people around this topic of, of home, and that can be anything that happens inside of the home, how it's used, um, what gets consumed in there and even how it's decorated and, and broadly what the inhabitants of the home will interact like and what that kind of family dynamic might look like within the home. Fantastic. I mean, it, it's it's a fascinating industry and uh, I'm, I'm sure many people would like to get into this and certainly like to know more about it. Um, there are a number of trend prediction companies out there. What would you say is the USP of Trend Bible? 
So, um, yeah, I think there are about 100 different trend forecasting agencies globally, as, as far as I can um, gather. And um, when I set Trend Bible up, uh, it was actually one of those moments where um, a bit of a sort of eureka moment. I literally sat up, bolt upright in bed in the middle of the night and thought I need to set up a home focused trend forecasting agency. And I remember that moment so vividly, it just hit me like a bolt of lightning. And it was because I think my brain, my subconscious had been milling around. Like I wanted to work in trend forecasting, but I didn't know where I could get a good, unique angle. I wanted to do something that was different to fashion forecasting because I felt that that market was very saturated. And as a, a one man band, I knew I couldn't compete with some of these absolutely gigantic thousand person agencies. And so I saw at the time, and we're talking back sort of 2008, something like that, I saw at the time that there was an opportunity to forecast trends around the concept of home. And so that became the foundation of the business. And it's really grown from there. It did start from understanding what kind of decor choices people would make. And we found ourselves over the years helping large corporates understand what kind of fragrance laundry powder they might produce or what kind of kitchen appliances might be needed in five years time or what kind of kitchens people will socialize and cook in in five years time um so it's it's really been um a, a sort of exploration of of what home means and as you can imagine at the moment in the pandemic people are are staying at home home means more to them they're spending much more time there so that there is a real focus from the brands and the customers that we work with on understanding how does that change the householder's relationship with their home. Great. Yeah. To have spotted the option of, or, of focusing on lifestyle was an, a really important route because nobody else was probably doing it as well at that time. Would, is that what you'd say? Yeah, I think that there was a there was a huge focus on fashion, and obviously my background was fashion, and I'd I'd studied menswear design, and a lot of my peers thought that I was completely crazy to to not launch a menswear trend forecasting agency, but I could just see that there was for me there was too much competition there. I couldn't stand out. I couldn't do anything different and special there. So I had to find a sector that I felt was underserved. And at that time, yes, I I think you're right. There 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 was a lack of um, depth of understanding of how important home was and also just of all of the things inside of the home that ne needed some trend forecasting. I mean, 10 years ago, nobody was really forecasting trends on um, laundry detergent fragrances. That wouldn't have been a sector that was ripe for trend forecasting. So if we look back 10 years, 20 years, the kind of industries that use trend forecasting, that they were they were much narrower as a group of industries. Yes, the fashion industry always did forecast trends. The oil industry always forecast trends. But actually, if you worked in the kitchen, um, the kitchen industry, you weren't necessarily forecasting uh, the future of kitchen units. And if you worked in kitchen appliances, you weren't necessarily forecasting the future of those. And even things, you know, you'll notice the huge rise in things like house plants, whether those are real or whether those are artificial. So you would people were definitely not phoning up and saying, can you tell us the next style of artificial plant that you think will resonate with consumers? Whereas now we get those calls, we get people asking us, you know, what's next for plants? What are the next plants that people are going to want? Um, or something like outdoor lighting. Ten years ago, people were not forecasting trends as to what's the latest type of outdoor lighting that people want to have in and around their gardens. So there, there is a broadening requirement 
And I think that's really what I saw was that for every product I could see in the home, I knew that there would be companies out there that needed to understand how their customer would shop from them and what they'd be drawn towards in the future. And I guess that was part of my trend forecaster's brain really was to just zone in on that opportunity. I could I could see it really clearly. and I knew it was an underserved market. Trend forecasting is fascinating. And over my time in the industry, I've always loved to hear and see what the predictions are for the future. How did your journey into predicting the future begin? Well, I found out about the trend forecasting industry when I was uh, a, a design student, a fashion design student at Kingston University in Surrey. And I'd never heard of trend forecasting before that. Um, not, not many people have heard of it full stop, but certainly in the fashion industry, trends are a, a huge part of, um, of the, the process, the design process. And as soon as I heard that there were agencies out there that employed people that came up with ideas and did research into how the future consumer would behave and that that informed fashion, I was completely hooked and tried to find out everything I possibly could about it. And one of the first things I was told was that there were only maybe 200 jobs worldwide at that time and that a graduate probably didn't have much of a chance of getting one of those jobs. And so I kind of took that challenge head on and um, found a way. I just found a way. I did go into the fashion industry and became a menswear designer, but I was always bringing um, this element of trend forecasting with me. And eventually that enabled me to to apply for a job as a trend forecaster years later, really, once I'd got the, the sort of design elements of my career under my belt. I was then able to go and apply for a job as a trend forecaster and start start my career sort of about five years in. Um, and and yeah, over the years, I've, I've worked for other companies as a trend forecaster. I've worked with some huge brands in the States and in, in Europe and all over the world. I was head of trends at Tesco for five years before I set up on my own as a consultant. And really, um, over the years, the business has just blossomed. And, and I went from being an independent trend forecaster into building a company. And today we've got 22 people in our head office in Newcastle and then trend scouts in various locations all over the world from China to the US, all over the place. And they report into us. Um, on a daily basis it's absolutely fascinating what you've done with the business and how you've developed this on and we met over 10 10 years ago it must have been when we were both at um, were, um teaching into Northumbria University the fashion communication course and I wondered um how how it is that you've b- built it and, and brought people in into the business um from 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 a standing start effectively well actually it does link through to my um my background and and you mentioned Northumbria there I I taught at a couple of universities a couple of days a week when I was starting the business just to get some some cash coming in and I I always loved teaching I absolutely loved teaching at degree level and that really was a a brilliant route for me to get to meet up-and-coming designers and trend forecasters and creatives generally and it also became a route for to employment for Trend Bible over the years, although I never knew at the time that that would happen. I, it didn't occur to me when I was teaching that I would ever be in a position to offer anybody else a job. I was just trying to make my own living out of being a trend forecaster. And so my first employees really were people that I had taught where I got to see their work. I got to see their portfolios. I would got to work with them and understand what they could 
um, bring from a kind of uh, a creative level and from a, a, a broader professional level. And so some of the people that I had in the business in the early days were people that I taught and people who'd graduated from Northumbria University and from what was Cleveland College of Art, which is now the Northern Design School. And um, they joined the business. Some of those people stayed with me a year and went off to London and worked there and have had fantastic careers. And um, the, some of the, the graduates that joined me actually now are some of my most senior management team, which is wonderful because they've been with me on that entire journey. So we have people that were students probably 10 years ago when you and I taught alongside each other that now are my heads of heads of division for the trend team. So that's been a really important thing for me. Um, my, I'm from the Northeast. I, I went and worked elsewhere in the world and came back to the Northeast. And I'm very passionate about providing really high quality creative jobs for people that are in the region. And so that is probably one of the things I'm most proud of is being able to offer really exciting creative jobs to some of those people that wanted to stay in the Northeast. And then, of course, we have other trend team members that join us from elsewhere in the world. So I mentioned that we have the trend scouts all over the world, but we also have a number of people that that move here to come and work with us. We had somebody that moved here from Austria. We've had somebody that's just relocated from California. We have people that move here from London. So we've, we've kind of become this sort of creative magnet um, in, in Newcastle for trend forecasters all over the world. And it is a very niche industry. So um, there aren't that many trend forecasters out there. And it's wonderful that they they come here and they they settle and live here um, really because they want to come and work for Trend Bible. Fantastic. I mean, it, as I say, it's, it's amazing what you've built up in, in over the last 10 years. Um, it, it, it truly is. Um, in terms of finding those trends and with your team, how, how, how does the process actually work? How do you how do you gather that information? Well, we have a number of different ways. We host trend panels, which are probably our single most effective way of taking that temperature gauge of of what social change is is coming. And in those trend panels, we invite a number of different experts. Um, We invite researchers, we invite academics, we invite curators from um, different art galleries. Um, We invite textile designers, all sorts of researchers, anthropologists, a real mixture of people. And we ask them to share with us what their vision of the future is for a specific time frame. So at the moment, for example, most of my customers who are global brands and retailers are working on trends for 2022. So they're working about two years ahead. And so my team needs to work even further than that ahead. So we're working sort of two and a half to three years ahead. And when we host those trend panels, we're looking to gather together the similarities and the differences in the ideas. We always say we're looking for weak signals and we are looking for the start points, those emerging um, sort of seeds of a trend that start at the very beginning. And we're looking for the potential for that to grow into something that is a, a mass market trend. We're looking for something that will reach huge levels of success because most of our customers are large corporate they're global brands and retailers they don't want to tap into a a trend and produce a product off the back of a trend only reaching a few hundred or a few thousand people they want to tap into a trend when it is reaching full saturation and they can be really sure that lots and lots of people globally will be drawn to that product or that color or that new behavioral shift 
Um, so our trend panels are really the, the points where we will gather those weak signals. And my team have the job of evaluating that information and turning that into a forecast. And we publish that in two um, seasonal forecasts a year for our customers. And we have we have two available. We have one that's for the home interiors industry. So anybody that makes a product that gets um, consumed within the home or um, it might be that it's a client that creates decor products to furnish the home. They buy the home interior version. And then we have a, a sort of family version, a baby and kids version. And we have play brands. We have companies like Lego, um, companies like Mattel, who buy our services on the baby and kids and the family side because they want to know how will families change and what is the nature of play as we move forward into 2022? What kind of things can we expect to shape the way that consumers' behaviours are formed? I mean, that, that area particularly is so fascinating right now because um, obviously we've gone through, we're going through this pandemic and I, I guess I've got to ask the question, did you guys see this coming? <laughs> so it's a very good question. We, we didn't see it coming, although we do have a, um, some clients in China. So obviously we saw it emerge there first. So when I talk about weak signals, that is really a weak signal, but nobody knew that it would spread a at all and be at the rate that it spread um, in the very early days. Now, um, I don't know about you, but I didn't follow any epidemiologists at that point, and and I do now because I think it's such a fascinating study of how um, how an epidemic can spread, and it ties very closely with how trends spread actually too. So it's a, it's although it's a very worrying time, and it's not to be underestimated the the damage that it's done. From a trend forecaster's perspective, it is fascinating to to see these trends and behaviours shape shift after and around the actual infection itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so no, we didn't see it coming. We would describe this as a black swan event, and black swan events are things that are unpredictable global events with huge, wide ranging global implications that follow. And so we would always describe something like this. It's similar to um, the impacts that you would feel if there was something like a terrorist attack, something that was unpredictable, you couldn't have predicted it. We treat it as a black swan. We know it has consequences and it's the consequences that we are interested in. How will it shape people's behaviours? Will people develop new behaviours during lockdown, for example? And how keen will they be to maintain those behaviours once the world comes out of lockdown and they have their freedom back? How much of this behaviour will they hang on to or will they simply park it and go back to the way that life was before? Great. I mean, it's, it, this whole thing is fascinating and, and I'm sure there's so much psychology involved in this too. But I guess and, and going back to um, where your business has grown, obviously you must be really good at what you're doing to have built it because you're based on the success of what you've predicted effectively and what people, um, how, how people see that. How do you find um, building your customer base, for example? Well, it's you're right 10 years of sort of hard work and and proving that the trends that we forecast do come true is a massive part of that and whenever we work with a new customer that's the first question they ask is how how do you get it right and can you show us that you get it right and so the the best thing for us to show them is always an example of a fully formed trend that people are living and breathing and buying into today and show them the kind of backstory to that that trend um, we call it backcasting. Actually, we've got a lovely workshop on that that we do with clients and 
um, it helps them understand that those events and happenings that that happened along the way in the formation of that trend were things that we were absolutely paying attention to as forecasters, although our clients might not have been paying attention to those because, for example, a client working in um, the toy industry might not be looking at the way the food industry is operating and where the innovations are coming through from home furnishings, for example. So we are gathering information from such a broad range of industries and seeing innovation so broadly. And that's what we are bringing towards a customer that works in a very particular field where their focus might be much more narrow. Um, so, yes, being able to evidence trends is a, is a massive part of, of being able to convince people that we can do the same for them. Because as you can imagine, um, speaking to a global brand where they are go going to potentially place millions of pounds worth of investment behind a trend that you forecast, they have to be absolutely sure that you're, you're right about your predictions. Um, so it, it is a big, um, it's a it's a really big piece of what we do. Great, uh, it, it, uh, you know, as I said, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. I'm really interested too in, uh, you know, we've talked about the fashion side and and obviously predictions impact on colour, but actually the psychology behind families and um, nature of play you mentioned um, there. Can you uh, just elaborate a bit more on that, on, on how you um, gather that information and how useful that is for, for uh, lifestyle companies? Absolutely. I think the thing that sort of first drew me to trend forecasting was that it was this unique blend of art and science. It's kind of a, a study of social sciences and human behaviour. Um, and it also does link into design and art and culture. And of course, trends, much as there might be a global trend for something, once you start to put those trends into different regions and different countries, there can often be a cultural lens that, that is layered over that. So sometimes what we'll do for customers is we'll forecast a global trend for them. But actually, we have to tell them how that trend will shape shift when it hits the Chinese market, for example, versus the American market. because the needs, the requirements and the, the culture that exists in those countries does impact and shape um, the way that a trend will be perceived um, in those places. So our trend scouts become a really critical source for us because they help us be able to um, put that regional lens over the forecast that we produce. And of course, our trend scouts are kind of born and bred in those regions. They deeply understand what is and is not acceptable in that culture. And to give you an example of that, we have a, a client in China and uh, we recently forecast some trends for them. They produce bedding, luxury bedding. And in China, it is deemed to be deeply irrespectful to produce bedding in the colour of white because it symbolises death in China. And of course, when our clients came from China to the UK, they asked us to take them on a tour of London to show them the best possible bedding and all of the sort of market leaders in bedding in London and we took them to the white company which of course is all white bedding and it was just such a fascinating thing to see you know to see these people where this it symbolized something so different to them and they were trying to sort of grasp this fact you know is there some opportunity here for us as a Chinese company who is more and more influenced by western culture how do we go about trying to introduce something like this to to our community and to our culture where this is is deemed a kind of a very negative thing and how do we go about educating a customer to embrace this kind of look or 
perhaps it's not possible. So we, we end up uncovering all of these really, you know, you tend to think that trends are very surface and it's very much about here today, gone tomorrow. But I always say that the, the most fascinating thing about trends is that they get kind of so deeply woven into the, the everyday culture of what we're about that we almost fail to recognise them as trends anymore. They become something that just we take for granted that, you know, this is how life is now. And it's it's always been like this. That's not necessarily the case. We we um, find that that trends embed themselves so deeply in the way that we behave that we almost can't recognise them as trends anymore. Wow. And when you you sort of visualise that journey from seeing something and working through it, what we now were shocked at six weeks ago of the impact of being told to stay at home is now become normal to us. And we're all thinking, okay, so this is what we're used to. What are we, you know, what, how will life um, will will change after this? I guess for you, um, in terms of travel, travel must be such a massive part of your business because you need to go and see clients. You also need to go, I guess, to exhibitions or your team do. How do you see that changing now with res- potential restrictions on travel um, going forward? Yes, it, it is. You're right. It's it's always been a huge part of what we do. We travel to about 100 different trade shows and events and talks and seminars a year. And my team, you know, invariably out of 22 people, there are always two or three people out of the office traveling somewhere at some time. So it has had a huge impact on us. And what we've obviously been forecasting as a business for the past two or three years is this desire from consumers, a kind of attitudinal shift towards traveling less people actually realize that to travel less reduces their carbon footprint and and although that kind of attitudinal shift is there we've never really seen the behaviors fully follow through off the back of those attitudes and i think it's the same for us at trend bible we're no different we we also have been thinking about how might we as a business behave in a way that feels more socially responsible and take note of things like our carbon footprint and make sure that we're doing our best as a business to reduce that and so this has kind of given us an opportunity to really reevaluate that. And the trade shows, of course, that we travel to in Paris and all over, all over the world, really, um, require us to get on a plane to get there. And actually, we're now starting to think, well, if there was some sort of digital version of that, which some of the trade shows are actually pushing out a, an online um, forum rather than actually walking around a trade show, they're allowing you to go and see the products that would have been exhibited at those shows. Will we be able to get what we need from those shows? Is that possible to do that online? Um, and how might we introduce customers to things like um, online ideation workshops, for example? So quite recently, I mentioned that we have some clients in China. We had to do a week's worth of ideation sessions in from our office. So it was before the, the lockdown. It was when we could just about get back in the office before lockdown. And we did a week's worth of ideation sessions with our clients in China who were all based at home at that point. And of course, none of them speak English and we can't speak their language. So that was all translated and it worked really well. It worked really well. So it proved to us that, you know, yes, we have an international client base, but we don't always have to fly to have those meetings and to be with them. Um, This pandemic has forced us to move towards things that we were probably heading towards anyway but it would have taken us a few years to do that and we would have had to have um, the support and the backing and the agreement of our customers to be able to do that so this has enforced us all to move at the same pace and embrace technology to replace some of that travel. 
I guess the technology is there. It's just tapping into it. It's finding out what is available and how we can use it to to maximise on that connection going forward. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I think everybody realises that it's not quite the same as being in, in the room. I know my team and I have been talking about how much we miss a creative brainstorming ideation session when we're all together in the room and there's just an energy and a pace that you you can't replicate well online it can be done but it's not as good as that kind of face-to-face meeting um and it's funny how many people I've heard say over the past few weeks I really miss having meetings and before of course we were all working in a world where we said oh we're having too many meetings we seem to have meetings all of the time so it just helps reinforce the fact that face-to-face interaction is so important we we need that for our understanding and our sort of deeper human connections but actually we can mix that up a bit and there are times when we have a face-to-face meeting that could be done digitally and remotely. Oh yes I know it, 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 we know the world is changing and uh, we're all going to have to adapt to different ways much faster than we've ever had to adapt to anything in our working lives so um, watch this space I guess and see how we're all going to uh, find different ways of engaging but I, I do think I agree with you that the human contact is so important um, and particularly when you're building business to to have that um, connection with other people um, that can happen in a room that you can't necessarily plan ahead for um, because those sort of things can happen happen over a coffee or a drink at the bar or whatever it is. Um, you know, it's it's that opportunity to explore new ideas with people without pre-planning, I guess. Absolutely. And then, of course, and we found that there are opportunities within this sort of new way of, of online working as well. You know, we've been able to work with with trend scouts. Um, we already have a network of trend scouts that, that pool in information to our core team all the time. But actually, it's just helped us kind of lift our head up a little bit towards that and say, well, now that we're fully digital, and we're all working remotely. Who else might we be able to, to bring into our network? And are we are we looking broadly enough at who those individuals are and where they're based? Because it actually opens up the work pool for us on a global scale now. We're not thinking about who can we work with that's close enough to get to Newcastle for a one hour meeting. We're thinking, well, it doesn't matter now because we can just dial them in and we can have a conversation with them and find out about how life's changing for them in the next 30 minutes without having to pay for travel or have them sit on a train for two or three hours to get here or fly in from somewhere. So in some respects, it's, it, it liberates the thinking as well. It gets you to be a little bit more creative with how you plan those interactions. Well, um, I must admit, we're delighted that uh, Trend Bible will be sharing um, the view through the pandemic lens um, later in June on the um, when we do our Expo North conference. And this is a conference that we would normally have an, a, a large number of people come to in Inverness and we will be um, promoting it and it will be done digitally now. But on a personal note, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate um, you sharing this with us today and hopefully look forward to meeting you in the presence, in the physical space at some point in the future too. I hope so. And thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Okay. Thanks, Joe. This podcast is one of a series of curated pieces from Expo North which continues the debate on topics of interest throughout the year. 
the annual Inverness-based Expo North offers delegates access to an exceptional creative programme. The conference and showcase take place over two vibrant days and nights in the Highland capital. The only festival of its kind in Scotland covering craft, fashion and textiles, writing and publishing, screen and broadcast, digital, technology and music. Expo North is a unique event in the UK's creative calendar. All elements of Expo North are completely free. Find out more at exponorth.co.uk